For our COBT viewers, it's Maynard, Mike, and Arjun here with the last show of 2023. We're super excited because we've got our friend Brian Lee joining. Brian is the senior uh, energy analyst, the green or clean energy analyst at Goldman Sachs. He's been there since 2011, so he's been doing it quite a long time. Um, he's a good friend and he's a really bit enjoyable guy. Brian, let me just say thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to jump in and talk about the year in review, the year ahead, and just the perspective uh, you have on everything happening in energy, particularly clean energy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been, you know, uh, a great partnership over the years to have work with y'all and kind of seeing this energy transition evolve um, over the years and hopefully for many more years to come. But uh, we, we can talk about the year in review. We also are out with some fresh views on the 24 outlook as well. So definitely a lot of uh, different topics we can cover here. Oh, we can't wait. My, my little cheat sheet. I've got so many things, Brian. It's, it's going to be a whopper. Mike, uh, let me wish you a Merry Christmas and a yep. Happy New Year. Hanukkah behind us now. Yep. But uh, what would you tell us to get us started? Yeah, you started uh, saying, Maynard, is, um, this is going to be the last CBO, COBT of the year. So we thought we'd just sort of wrap up uh, the year-to-day performance and you know, commodities, energies, equities, bonds, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll start you off with- You got my 401k in there, Mike? Is it up? Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not looking. <laughs> I'm not looking. <laughs> Me neither. Anyway, just from a bond standpoint, it doesn't take a genius to realize that, you know, at the beginning of the year, the 10-year was uh, started out at 3.9%, got as high as 5% on inflation concerns, and, and now we're at 3.9%. So we've done a round trip here. Interesting CPI started the year at 6.1%, that 6.1% growth, and ended at 3.1% growth year over year. So yeah, it's still going up, but it's slowing. So that's a, so, so that's a misnomer that people don't understand. It's not going down, it's just the rate of growth is slowing. Uh, so that's bonds. And, and I think right now what the investors are looking from a bond standpoint is, okay, the Fed is gonna be you know now loosening is what the expectation is beginning in March for most people. Most people expect them three to four interest rate cuts next year. The question is, is why is that? Is that because inflation under control? Is that the economy is uh, petering out? I think it really matters, you know, what scenario plays out. So that's, that's bonds. From a commodity standpoint, WTI started the year at 80, got as high as 94, went as low as 67, and now we're around $74 a barrel. Interesting, U.S. oil production started the year at 12.1 million barrels a day. We ended around 13.1 million barrels a day. So a million barrel day increase. OPEC started the year at around 29.2 million. Now it's around 28 million barrels. So roughly a million barrel loss there. And so what's going on in the crude oil markets right now? We've gone from basically steep acquisition to contango. Essentially all the uh, growth, all the um, barrels that OPEC took off in the market were replaced by Guyana, you know, basically Brazil and predominantly the US. And I think the biggest issue the US is trying to deal with you know, investors are trying to deal with and commodity traders are trying to deal with is what is U.S. production going to look like next year? I think the next three or four uh, weeks, the EIA data, the weekly uh, you know, DOE data is going to be really important because there was a change on how, you know, crude oil is looked at. Uh, NGLs were thrown in there. So I think people are expecting that's going to slow down and may, maybe possibly even go down. So something to really watch is what the, the you know, weekly production looks like. Um, Natural gas. Natural gas started the year at 450. Hard to believe it was 450. Now it's around 250 and M. Don't have to take a genius to realize what happened there either. It's, we're getting a warmer winter to start off with. You know, you know, uh, storage is six to seven percent above normal. Natural gas production started the year around 100 MCF a day. Now it's at around 105 MCF a day. And so we just got yeah, BCF a day. Yeah, you're right. And uh, so we just have too much natural gas right here. Now, I think what people are starting to think about is, you know, what is natural gas outlook going to be looking like next year, especially with LNG coming on in the second half of 2024 and really hard in 2025. And so, you know, from a trading standpoint, investor standpoint, do I need to be involved with those, those natural gas equities today? Or do I need to be involved in more sort of mid-year? And I, and I think if you would have thought two or three months ago, people really wanted to start getting them and in, getting into them early in 2024. It doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like that's been pushed out a little bit. So that's natural gas. You know, the other thing from an equity standpoint, it's been a banner year for the NASDAQ. And NASDAQ's up around 55%. That's the best performance since 2009. S&P is up around 25%. You know, so that's done really, really well. What we're also seeing is a lot of money flow is coming out of bonds and into stock 
record money flows into stocks right now. So that's you got a lot of tailwinds behind the market right now. As it relates to energy sector performance, it's going to be hard to believe that some of the best and worst performers this year, the best performer this year is nuclear. Nuclear is up around 60%. Coal, everyone hates coal, right? Coal was up 35% this year. Refiners up 20. LNG 10, midstream and mining up 7%. Oil services up around 5%. Oil majors up 3%. Interesting thing about the oil majors is the EU oil majors significantly outperformed the U.S. majors. That's the first time that's happened in a couple of years. And I think it's them getting back to basics. You know, as, as we round it out here, you know, we're looking at um, EMP for flattish this year. Drilling stocks are down 6 7%. Renewables down 25%. Brian will talk about this in a second. And battery and solar were down in excess of 30% this year. And so that's what's going on. I think, you know, some of the things that we saw in the last week were going to be interesting to follow here in the next couple of weeks is, you know, two things. One thing we've been talking about, you know, the grid a lot, the electricity grid. We, we talked more about this in the last year than we've probably talked about this since we started the firm. And I, and I think interesting is the Illinois Commerce Commission last week, uh, Exelon and Ameren, you know, put, pro, put some proposals in front of them for, for a grid build out over the next four or five years. It was rejected by the, by the uh, Illinois Commerce Commission. And the reason they said that is because it didn't lower costs enough and it really didn't take into effect uh, for lower income consumers and, and sort of just, you know, some sort of a, um, environmental just, justice commissions, which is really, really strange to me. So I think the point with that is that this electricity grid build out is not going to be easy. It's going to be a lot harder than you think. It's going to cost much more than expected. And the last thing we'd want to say is this, U.S. Steel-Nippon merger, uh, right? I mean, it happened the other day, big premium, um, $15 billion deal. And I think what's interesting to me is, is like, you've had a lot of opposition come out already from basically bipartisan support in Congress to oppose this deal, okay? And it's going to be interesting to see what CFIUS, which is basically, you know, the government looking at these, uh, these the, uh, you know, companies coming in to buy U.S. firms, how they come out. I just look at these things and say there's going to be a lot of hurdles, a lot of obstacles to basically, you know, uh, get through with this. And it really is interesting to me is when you look at the Exxon Pioneer, you look at the Hess Chevron merger, they're getting, you know, second requests. And, and to me, it's like those make a lot of sense. Doesn't look like a lot of market share issues. If they allow this thing to pass, you really got to start to say what's going on in our, in our U.S. government. Yeah, so the Nippon thing. Yeah, exactly. So. Those are some of the things that we're thinking about. As we're thinking about with Brian this year, I think what we're we're interested in is what is what is his thoughts in 2024 in the renewable space. I mean, this year obviously renewables underperform a lot simply because people thought that they were basically interest rate bets on steroids. The question is: Is interest rates come down? Are they going to outperform? They have been outperforming over the last couple of weeks. The other thing I think which is interesting is SunPower just recently and Plug Power just recently came out and said there could be some going concern uh, issues with those companies. Stocks got really hurt. So I think it's going to be interesting to see next year how interest rates play in here, how the business models play into this thing, and how basically going concern plays into these stocks. And so with that, I'm really looking forward to see what Brian has to say today. That's great. Uh, Arjun, uh, Mike's lean-in reminds me, uh, energy is a supermarket and we got all the flavors and it's so much fun. You never know what's going to happen next. What would you add in? Yeah, absolutely, Maynard. And I'd also like to wish all of our viewers a happy holidays. And it's been great uh, getting to know you through the Veridin lens and uh, looking forward to 2024. I thought I'd just provide a few reflections. I think Mike did a great job of recapping, recapping some of the subsector dispersion and some of the challenges and opportunities that happened in 2023. I think one reflection for me, and we spent a lot of time, Maynard, as you know, talking about there's kind of the lucky one billion of us whose energy needs are largely satisfied. And you got these other seven to eight billion people on Earth who are still trying to move up that energy and economic S curve and are going to be using and demanding massive amounts of energy. And you look at 2023, so all the volatility and turmoil, we are going to have all time highs in oil demand, natural gas demand, coal demand, electric vehicle sales, uh, renewable diesel, solar deployment, wind deployment, all these things have volatility and the stocks have been all over the board in all these subsectors, but that use of energy. I mean, I know everyone gets excited about NASDAQ and tech and AI, and those are exciting areas. But is there a better secular growth story than energy? We've had 150 years of it. And I don't know if it's another 100 years, Maynard, or 150. That's probably the over-under. But how many more years of structural growth do we have? 
till everyone is similarly rich. And that to me has to be the goal. It's not that we're all similarly poor. It's that 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 other 7 billion people on earth gain the kind of living standards and energy use that we do. It's going to take all forms of energy. It's going to take the old stuff, and it's definitely going to take the new stuff. I think if I look at traditional energy, one of the things I'm thankful for, this is year three of much improved profitability after a tough last decade, and the balance sheets are better. But that's known. And so one of our key themes in our last super spike was, how do you phase in profitable growth going forward? What is your positive equity story? And I'm going to compliment Brian Lee and some of his names that have that. They might have had some volatility. They might have had some uncertainty this year. They might have run into the challenge of higher interest rates. But there are positive equity stories that those companies are trying to tell that is somewhat lacking in large harsh portions of traditional energy. How do you believe in your own future? What are the things you should be investing in? Maybe it's LNG. Maybe it's a new shale play. Maybe it's deep water exploration. Maybe it is transitioning some of your business to new energies. But it is no longer just about improving returns. That's table stakes. It's no longer just about improving the balance sheet. That's a given. What is the positive equity story going forward? I think it's going to be a challenge and an opportunity for traditional energy to lean into. I think the last thing I just want to talk about is I've had the, the great fortune of having worked with Brian um, at the beginning of his Goldman career, at the end of my Goldman career, 2011 to 14. And I, I watch with sort of great pride and joy to see how much progress he's made. And I always ask about Neil Maida because he took over my direct coverage. And whenever I ask how he's doing, every client says, the guy I love in addition to Neil is Brian Lee. This guy knows his sector. He knows the stocks. And I think what I've appreciated is so much of energy transition is focused on the ideology of climate and all these kind of things. And listen, there, there's a role for that. But Brian's an equity analyst. His job is to pick stocks and pick companies. It's what I pride myself on having that perspective. And so the feedback I always get is, here's a guy who actually knows the sector, knows the stocks, makes calls, and that's the focus. It isn't about the ideology. So with that, Maynard, I'm super excited to, to welcome Brian, Brian here. I'm going to turn it over to you. So Fantastic. Well, Brian, you can tell we're all fired up. It's the end of the year. Uh, we're going into the holidays. We've got all this reflection and then... And then Goldman Sachs is going to kick off the year uh, with the Energy Conference uh, January 3, 4, 5 in Miami. So you're the perfect guest to help us think about what happened and what's going to happen. So let me just welcome you again and maybe ask you to kick off wherever you like. I mean, we, you started uh, Goldman in 2011. You've been doing clean energy for a while. When you think about your space this past year and what happened, you know, what are the what are just some big reflections that you have uh, thinking about uh, what was a, a really kind of a, a big year with a lot of things happening? Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe just, you know, taking two big steps back, as, as Arjun mentioned, I was almost about to shed a tear there. You know, we, we did overlap at the early part of my career and, and the later stages of Arjun's, but um, sector. Uh, Brian, we've never, had any, we've never had anybody <laughs> cry on the show. That could have been big. <laughs> That could have been really big. You, you get you get all the special surprises at year end. Um, <laughs> so I, I think if you kind of reflect back on where this sector as a whole has come, I mean, we're talking about, you know, year end and, and at the Goldman Energy Clean Tech Utilities Conference in Miami in a couple of weeks, we're going to be kicking off the year, hopefully, in, in a big way. Um, I mean, my sort of biggest personal reflection is, you know, just three, four years ago, we weren't even part of that conference, right? That was just a traditional energy conference. We had our own separate utilities conference. And, you know, we as a firm have made a decision, unlike a lot of other banks where they might cover, uh, you know, clean tech out of the technology spectrum, we had made a decision early on, uh, you know, during Arjun's tenure that this is absolutely energy. Uh, this is an energy sector with some technology, but what energy is not based on some sort of technology that you're deploying in the field. And so, um, you know, come full circle, uh, this has become over the past couple of years, a big staple of our conference uh, every year here at the flagship, you know, January Miami event. And, you know, we'll have um, close to a dozen of our companies presenting similar to last year. And it gives you this nice sort of, um, 
a dichotomy of the two different sides of the coin. Although our house view is you need all of it, right? Um, to Arjun's point, there's just a lot of global energy growth and needs that are going to play out over the next multiple, multiple decades. And so there's not a one solution fits all. You know, you look at the past 12 months, um, it's been a tough year for the group. It's been a tough year for the equities. And um, I've had multiple years during my career where those tough years coincide with uh, buy side equity investors basically saying, your group is uninvestable. Uh, there's no future for this technology. We finally found that out and the stocks told us that. I think what's changed even after a rough year like the past 12 months we've seen is there's a better appreciation across the markets that there's a lot of cyclicality in this space, but the secular underpinnings of you know cost deflation, it becoming a bigger part of the energy mix globally, and just these companies becoming more mature uh, in general and the technologies themselves, I think has given you know the markets and investors we speak to more confidence that this is a cycle, right? And at some point, you're going to want to play the other side of the cycle. And so unlike in past down cycles where we've actually had you know, investors say, hey, don't, don't call me anymore. Your sector's not investable. This is a period where I think people are starting to sharpen their pencils, looking at this tape and saying, well, you know, maybe what goes down must come up unless you have some structural issues. And we can talk about some of the companies that might have that in our space. But for the most part, a lot of this was cyclical. Uh, we had the macro. Right, you had higher interest rates, consumer affordability. You know, a third of this market, publicly traded equities, is represented by consumer-facing residential and market business models. And so, naturally, higher interest rates, higher borrowing costs, fears of a recession, discretionary spending coming down, those were all macro forces that pushed down uh, the demand pipeline for a lot of these companies. And then, as you move through the year. Um, that macro uh, narrative basically started getting applied to everything in the space, including some of the better position utility scale and larger scale renewable asset owner, developer, equipment, um, supply chain names. And so uh, it, it's been quite a year where I think you've seen, you know, the original macro fears play out as expected, maybe even to a greater extent than we thought. And then on top of that, you had a bit of contagion um, moving through the past couple of quarters of earnings where even utility scale solar names have started to kind of um, find themselves in the mix. You know, having said all of that, you know, this past few uh, weeks to month with interest rates coming back in, um, expectations that interest rates are going to get cut even more next year. I think our econ team is talking about five cuts next year. Sentiment is, has clearly picked up. Um, you know, there is a uh, expectation that maybe there will be somewhat of a recovery for these names, um, whether it's sentiment, positioning, fundamental. I think there's a mix of different elements depending on what type of investor you're speaking to. But um, uh, the, the past few weeks, I think, have given people even more reason to sort of start um, dusting off the playbook for renewables as they look into the new year. So, uh, Brian, that was a great a kickoff for us. I, I want to pause on one thing you said that's that's interesting. Um, you know, the history of kind of commingling everything together. Like there was for a long time, traditional energy was over here and new energy was over here, and most places did did it that way. And frankly, I think most new energy people would just as soon have been separated. You know, and but then you know sentiments change and so on and so forth. And I love the way you guys uh, do it at Goldman which is everybody under the same umbrella. Are the investors under the same umbrella? So uh, talk to us about the investing space because when they, when they uh, are there funds out there that um, are saying, you know, gosh, I wanna hear the update on Enphase and I'm also curious about Chevron and I wonder what's happening with Kinder Morgan. Are, are, are people investing like that now or are they tending to stay in their own flavor? No, it's a great question. I mean, we've seen an evolution. Um, I mean, earlier on in my career, I would say there were dedicated clean tech, you know, PMs, funds, specialists, what what have you. On top of that, you would have a lot of sort of technology um, buy-siders crossing over because they viewed this as sort of solar tech. 
Um, and then you had, you know, your typical growth generalists, which looked at this as a sector that had a lot of growth going forward. Um, over time, I think what has become a lot more evident is that uh, energy and utility investors can speak the language of renewables and they need to because that's what they're hearing about from their companies on these conference calls. That's what's being baked into their CapEx forecasts. And it has, you know, some to do with ESG, but I think in general, I think, you know, you're, you're seeing this energy transition um, uh, being appreciated by all of the sort of energy um, counterparts across both traditional and clean. And so, I think we went through a period, you know, several years ago where we were seeing a lot of our buy side um, counterparts coming from the traditional energy world, but they were abandoning energy and going full into clean energy. There was no sort of hybrid models. Um, and that was a period where the energy tape was going through a, a rough kind of multi-year patch. And we were seeing a lot of influx of those types of investors. Then we went through a couple of years of really bad uh, clean tech equity performance and energy kind of coming back into vogue. And so they all kind of went back to their day jobs. And I say, if you fast forward to today, we're seeing a lot more, as you put it, Maynard, of these investors who are under the same umbrella. Um, they are looking at the traditional side. They have the same fund looking at the renewable side. And there's, you know, separate sleeves, but they are talking a lot more to each other. And so I'd say that hybridization is almost indicative of kind of our house view where you need all of it. So why not focus on all of it as opposed to have your very siloed sort of one team does this, one team does that, or we go all in on one sector versus the other, which, you know, again, a couple of years ago, we were seeing that. And I think a lot of investors sort of got burned. It was their first time looking at clean tech. They were all in and kind of had abandoned their traditional energy day jobs. And that uh, timing wasn't, wasn't ideal for how that played out at that time. So what, one question, uh, Brian, I think um, um, this is maybe an observation. You tell me if it's right or wrong, but obviously interest rates were impacting uh, your universe a lot last year. I also developed the impression a little bit that when these stocks were hot, people were just buying them and, you know, because of, there was a lot of momentum and, and there was just a lot of compelling, um, there was a compelling storyline around them. But when things started going poorly, uh, people realized sort of the complexity, the underlying complexity, or they, they started understanding them better. I don't know, maybe that's an impression I have, but uh, uh, how would you characterize sort of, um, are investors just getting smarter and smarter and more picky around your space and really, uh, I. I think I'm leading the witness here, but I assume they're really digging in and understanding how these stocks work better as businesses than they might have initially. I, I think what you have um, in good times is there's sort of a floating ceiling on valuation multiples and kind of where people think estimates can go. And we tend to overshoot on the upside, just like we tend to overshoot on the downside. Um, I, I think you know, at, in the heyday, we had policy tailwinds, we had growth multiples kind of being at peak. And these companies, you know, to be fair, they were executing quite well. And so all of it looked like it was just up and to the right. Um, when you start to go through these downturns, and we've seen multiple instances of these downturns um, over the past decade plus that we've been covering the stocks, then the the script flips. Um, and it flips pretty quickly to sort of what is the base case sort of asset value of some of these business models? Because if you look at what the underlying value that these you know businesses are creating outside of some of the equipment names, they're basically creating assets at the customer level, whether it's rooftop solar systems or what have you. And so the discount rate assumptions clearly go a long way in what number you end up coming out with when you do these valuation exercises. And as the interest rate environment, which we saw over the past year and a half, continued to ratchet upwards, you kept seeing those discount rate assumptions moving higher and higher, and hence the equity valuations going lower and lower. And you tend to overshoot, you know, as rates are going up and they're volatile people assume there's going to be another 100 bips on top of whatever your base case was. And then there's another 100 bips on top of that. And so the sensitivity analyses ultimately end up shooting at a much higher number than what the market might be reflecting or the Fed forward curve might be showing. And so I think that's a function of what plays out on the downside in these cycles. I think the other thing 
to your point. Um, I don't know if it's so much investors understanding the nuances of these business models better than before. I think there is some some element of that for sure. But I think there's also the nuance of some investors who are newer to the clean tech space have never really gone through a full cycle, right? They've seen an upturn, maybe, maybe they've seen a downturn, or maybe they're just in it for the first time. And so um, it's all great when everything's going up and to the right. Uh, when things start to break down and then you have to get into the weeds on some of these financials and the balance sheets and, you know, whether these companies can make cash flow and, and working capital uh, constraints work during the downturn, that's, you know, kind of when the rubber hits the road. And a lot of investors, I would say, just from, you know, feedback, we haven't been through this. And so uh, that's been, you know, from our vantage point, an opportunity to guide our clients through some of this and also, reflect on the fact that we've been through this before, right? It, it, it's going to end poorly, probably for some companies It may end up structurally in a different place for some companies when they're outside on the other side of the cycle. But some of these companies are going to come out in a stronger position, you know, maybe having consolidated some share, maybe having picked up some uh, additional uh, cost leverage because they decided to actually rationalize their cost structures through the cycle, as opposed to just assume growth is up and to the right forever which I think early on in the clean tech evolution, we saw companies built that way and, and some of those companies no longer exist. These companies themselves have figured it out a little bit more where I think it's helped um, probably the investor base as well understand how these cycles are going to play out. So Brian, one question, you, um, your universe of stocks and, and kind of how you gravitated to that group and then how you define clean energy, maybe how Goldman defines it and, and, and how that's, it's different. Like, I'm just kind of curious how you, cause you've got water in there, you've got storage, you've got solar, um, you've got LED, like talk to us about how you choose your world and, and how it might grow or how you, or how you help others with some different flavors. It's just curious how you got to the stocks you got to. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's an eclectic mix and I'm sure going forward, um, it'll continue to remain a pretty eclectic mix. One thing I tell folks all the time is, you know, we cover 25 or 30 stocks. If you look back, you know, six, seven years, still covering 25 or 30 stocks, but half of them are different stocks than they are today. New capital formation, companies consolidating, companies, you know, disappearing and those technologies not working out or the business models not working out. So, Kind of the nature of the beast, um, even though we say some, certain pockets of clean tech are becoming mature, uh, the definition of maturity, you know, beyond startup level is, you know, it's, it's what you make of it, but they're not really that mature in some instances, even though we call them relatively mature. I mean, I started off my equity analyst career covering uh, semiconductors of all things. And so I started from the technology side of things. I view, you know, I saw solar technology emerge from the semiconductor space. Some of these companies like SunPower and First Solar really were just making semiconductors on different substrates for a different end market opportunity. And so that was kind of my foray into the renewables industry. I think from a clean tech perspective, the definition evolves. Um, I feel like every other cycle, you know, there's been periods where, you know, biofuels were all the rage and, and that was a big part of our day to day. Um, I think uh, solar has kind of become a mainstay, um, but even in solar, we've seen a lot of turnover and sort of the business models and the equipment, you know, value chain and names we cover. And then over time, you know, we've incorporated a little bit more ESG, sustainability, thematic type um, sectors, which you mentioned the water equipment names. We cover about six or seven names that focus on water quality, purity, et cetera. And so that does um, sort of overlap with a lot of the, um, the type, of, type of investor mandates we see in, in our buy side clientele. And then, you know, going forward, there's, you know, battery storage, there's fuel cells, there's going to be other opportunities we imagine that will uh, come along and, and we are, you know, uh, very much looking forward to being a part of. Um, but uh, it's, it's been quite an eclectic mix and I'd say we, we're expecting it to remain so. It's, it's so maybe the way to think of it, you know, 25 or 30, you're always going to have the best things on the menu, but the menu changes as, as those stocks, you know, get better or fall out of favor. You just kind of usually have like, you know, Brian's specials or so to speak, like. 
we kind of view it as so you're going to have you know the critical mass the backbone of certain names where they've gone through four or five cycles already they've been public for a decade plus um doesn't mean these would, these would be like the like the big solar names would the be big like solar that. names you could you know consider like the first solars of the world in that camp and so um it doesn't necessarily mean they're the best names in the group it could depend on where we are in the cycle or how they're operating from an execution standpoint but you do have the formings of what we consider like core holdings in the group and kind of how we characterize it to our our buy side clients at times like these are core holdings more defensive they've lived through multiple cycles they've got uh, balance sheets um, and business models that are going to sustain. And then around the edges, um, you know, I know Arjun was always a big proponent of the barbell strategies. If you want to add some more offense, uh, alpha opportunities, idio names, you know, our, our group is chock full of those types of ideas. And uh, depending on the type of investor you are and the mandate you have, um, there's a little bit of a flavor for everyone. But uh, the good thing about our group, I'd say, is over the course of the past, you know, 10, 15 years I've been covering it, the core holding group has sort of become bigger versus every cycle we're just dealing with new IPOs or things that you have to bet on the sustainability of the company going forward through a few cycles versus just how are they going to perform in the next cycle, which I think we're starting to see with some of these core holding type of uh, businesses that are out there now and have established themselves. But maybe one more question just as we scope out the playing field. Uh, do you find, so you're dealing with investors globally, um, do they tend to, by region, um, you know, like, for instance, in, in Europe, you spend more time there because they just like these stocks better there, or Canada or Australia or a place like that? Like, is there anything you would say about the global investor footprint and how it correlates to interest in your stocks? Absolutely. I think um, early on, European interest was higher than U.S. interest. Um, it, it would it would be uh, quite evident based on inbounds, marketing meetings, etc. Um, the European clientele was quite um, up to speed and sort of ahead of the curve, if you will, on renewables. And I think that had a lot to do with um, you know the domestic presence of a big supply chain out there and the original sort of. Uh, bubble, if you will, that we saw in clean tech, particularly solar. Um, as that deflated and a lot of those domestic opportunities kind of went away, I think we've seen them move to Asia and then in some respects also into the U.S. And so we've seen a lot of influx both in the U.S. Um, investor base around renewables and, and focus on renewables, but also Asia. I, mean, I would say on a weekly basis, I'm doing you know, post dinner calls uh, with you know clients based in in Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, and what have you. And um, I think part of the reason is there's a contingent of you know domestic uh, China or Asia based um, clean tech equity names that either our names are read acrosses for or based on how they trade in Asia, they're looking at potential arbitrage opportunities um, in the US and elsewhere. Uh, but yeah, that's become a, a, an increasing um, uh, footprint for us in terms of client focus. So Asia, the US, you know, not to say that Europe has, has come down dramatically, but yeah, definitely Europe was sort of at the forefront initially. And the baton has kind of been taken by US and Asia investors, I would say. Brian, one of the uh, points you made in the early uh early thoughts was just the group is cyclical. People are learning the group is cyclical. And it really kind of reminds me that, you know, this group is probably not much different than traditional shale company type companies. And, and when I think about what got shale in trouble is a massive amount of money went after a new technology. Returns were not important. Growth was the only thing that was important. Then basically the financing dried up. You know, companies were going bankrupt, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of look at, it feels like this is what's going on with the, you know, sort of this alternative energy, new energy stuff where financing became more expensive. You know, maybe in some instances, growth slowed. I think when I think about this year uh, for your coverage, you know, I saw Enphase the other day talk about we're rationalizing our basically cost structure. You're hearing other guys talking about the same. I think one of your, your Nova upgrade may have been, we think they're going to have higher margins next year. And I guess my question would be, do you think 2024 will be not about growth? It'll be more of a margin story. Guys getting their business model 
you know, more in line, maybe not returning capital like the energy company, traditional energy, but just getting their business models in better shape. Those are the outperformers next year, as opposed to just growth or interest rates coming down. I think there's going to be some element of that. I mean, um, to be fair, this is a group that, um, at least in my experience, has always needed the growth investor to be engaged in order for the group to outperform, even though when the stocks are down as much as they are, and we've seen this multiple instances over the past several cycles, value investors do poke around, but the group that ultimately moves them higher is the growth investor coming back. And so um, I think the growth rebound with maybe a, a more um, you know acute focus on the cost structure or margins or maintaining margins, right? Coming out of this cycle with a intact margin structure or maybe slightly better if you've been able to successfully uh, leverage some cost reductions, that's going to be in focus. And that could be a area where you see those stocks, those business models end up getting more credit from the buy side community than others. I mean, I would say, you know, Enphase and Solar Edge, if we're just going to talk about two specific companies that our view are, are moving in different directions and in, in with, with regards to that, they're both probably going to be levered to some amount of growth recovery into 24, given how easy comps have become in 23 and where we are in the stage of the downturn and ultimately the upturn that we do think will start to emerge in 24. But when you look at where their margins are at, you know, Enphase basically hasn't had to cut price and they're still hanging around a 40 to 45% gross margin, which is where they were at the peak of the cycle. Now at the bottom of the cycle, they're still doing 40, 45% gross margins and talking about OPEX cuts that are going to lower their, you know, um, cost structure into the second half of next year. You know, SolarEdge has basically gone from a 30% gross margin to zero at the bottom of the cycle, peak to trough. And it's unclear as to whether they'll ever get back to the peak 30% gross margin. And if they do recover on volumes uh, like the rest of the group do, again, the uncertainty around what they're going to look like from a profitability standpoint, from a cash flow standpoint, gives us pause as to whether or not that stock itself will get as much credit in the recovery as others where not only are they seeing the same type of growth rebound, but they're seeing it at you know profit levels that are consistent with where they were before. Hence, you know we've got the buy rating on Enphase, and we recently put a sell rating on Solar Edge. And the other thing I, I probably want to ask is, I mean, how are investors looking at it from a valuation standpoint? Has that changed over the last say twelve or eighteen months, where say growth is the most important thing, but now a certain certain multiple, the discounted you know discounted growth rate or discounted cash flows or EBITDA. What, what is the preferred measure? Has that measure changed over time? And where do you expect it to go in the next, say, two years? I don't think the um, the preferred measures have changed too much. Um, I mean, generally speaking, the equipment names like the panel makers, the tracker makers, the inverter makers, we see investors view those as fairly transparent earnings growth stories. Um, and so you've got either PE multiples or EBITDA multiples being applied uh, to those stocks. And then uh, the more esoteric business models where you don't have traditional EPS EBITDA like the Resi installers, Sunrun, Sonova, et cetera, uh, those get treated with the, the, the DCF frameworks. And the DCF framework, I would say the biggest change we've seen is the amount of risk people want to embed into the discount rate based on growth not rebounding or them having you know potential balance sheet issues because not only is the cost of capital going higher but the access to capital becomes a question mark if you think um, the markets continue to stay tight and these companies have trouble you know going to the markets and so um, at the start of the year, we probably were seeing DCFs running somewhere around five to six percent cost of capital whack for those models. Um, when these stocks got down to their troughs, I think people were talking high single digits, even some Uber bears talking like 10 percent. So you think about a you know, 400, 500 basis point swing in your DCF across a 25 year stream of cash flow is like, you know, our math suggests every 100 bips is about 15% in the price. And these stocks were at one point down 70%. Like the market is pretty efficient in that standpoint, if you think about it that way, assuming our math was right. Um, on the flip side, when you think about the equipment names, you know, that one's been trickier because, um, you know, there isn't a floor value per se. I think where investors have generally hovered is if the market's trading at 18 times PE or nine times EBITDA, 
And I don't know if these companies are going to grow over the next 12 months because of the macro and interest rates or just supply chain issues. Maybe I don't give it much more than a market multiple, even though if you're looking beyond 12 months, it seems pretty draconian to not you know, give uh, a secular TAM opportunity like solar a better than market multiple, uh, or you're expressing some kind of structural view that these business models are challenged for multiple years. Like That's a draconian view, but that's where I think a lot of investors defaulted to when they said, I have no confidence in growth for these companies for a while, so I'm going to put them in kind of that market multiple basket. Brian, I actually wanted to build upon some of uh, Mike's questions there. And you, you, it was an interesting observation that for especially Resi Solar to work, you kind of need the growth investors or they're the core constituency. Um, and of course, they started from a very small base and they have grown a lot. And it looks like they can really have sort of a total addressable market question for you. I mean, solar has grown quite a bit. And in at least some markets, we're getting to the point where the intermittency and these kind of issues are becoming more noticeable. And so, yes, there are things like storage. Yes, there are other uh, things we can do. But how do you think about total addressable market? If we add up Resi Solar and, and Utility Solar, please tell me the better metrics to look at. And it, how much more room do we have to grow where uh, we start wondering about what, you know, these things get saturated and you're definitely going to need the storage to have to be there or we're at the limits and whether it's baseload nuclear or maybe it's natural gas or something else, they need to be part of the mix going forward. Maybe I'll stop there. I think you understand what I'm asking. Absolutely. So, I mean, from a resi standpoint, um, it I don't know if it's more straightforward, but the numbers are, are easier to sort of dissect. You have um, only one place where resi solar is being built. It's on you know single family home rooftops. And in the US, the US census data suggests there's 110 million single family homes in the country. Today, there's 4 million reported households with rooftop solar. So you're talking about a low to mid single digit penetration rate across that single family home stock. You know, we do our own sort of um, uh, cut on the numbers because there are certain states where either there's no net metering available or they're just not in very sunny areas of the country. And so you probably would never really build solar there anyway. So we get to more of like an effective TAM of 60 to 70 million homes across the country. So even with that 4 million homes, you know, you're talking about a mid to at most high single digit percentage of penetration. Uh, there are case studies across the world, Australia, one in five homes have rooftop solar. Uh, Hawaii, I mean, it's more of a microcosm, but um, it's, uh, I think, one third of homes uh, have have solar on the rooftops. Obviously, Hawaii is a very expensive electricity state, plus they got rid of net metering uh, multiple years ago. And so it's just conducive for doing solar. But, you know, we definitely see an opportunity where that 4 million homes could become 8, could become 12 million. And so you're talking about easily another doubling to tripling of the number of um, homes that take rooftop solar, we're run rating at about 500,000 new homes every year. And so, you know, if you continue to string that out, there's at least a decade plus worth of kind of double digit growth in terms of new installations that can play out. Um, and, you know, what gives us uh, further encouragement around that is even though there are policy shifts like net metering in California, the ultimate offset in rooftop solar is twofold. One is equipment costs continue to come down. And as long as equipment costs continue to come down, that just makes the affordability of solar for a single family homeowner that much higher. And then the second element, um, and I'm not a utilities expert by any means, but if you look at what happens across the utility space, especially with load growth now looking like it's gonna grow for the first time in a while, these rates are continuing to go up. I think, you know, PG&E in California just recently um, approved a 13% year-on-year rate increase for Northern California uh, homeowners. Like it, it's just your threshold to offer solar at a lower price than the utility continues to get easier the more that rates go up across the utility space. And if you talk to our utilities analyst, Carly Davenport, she will tell you that utility capex continues to go up and to the right. Our estimates are going up, they're not going down. Um, and so that's conducive for rooftop solar continuing to be in the money and increasingly in the money. Uh, utility scale solar is a little bit more um, complicated, uh, but if you look, EIA data over the past several years will show you that there's only three forms of electricity generation we're building in the country, nat gas, 
wind and solar. And behind that gas, solar has become a very firm number two. I think one, because cost deflation, as I mentioned, two, you can build it in multiple forms, medium scale, large scale, and small scale on the rooftop. And, you know, wind, although it's it's generally um, the most cost effective solution, it's harder to find sites. And it's also the least baseload sort of um, energy generation resource you'll find. It, it blows in the middle of the night. Solar you have during the middle of the day. And if you pair with storage, then obviously you can turn it into a quasi baseload type resource, a bit more flexible than the purely intermittent resource. And you just don't hear a lot of wind plus storage facilities being built. Solar plus storage has become almost a de facto standard at this point. There's not a utility scale developer that's worth their salt in the US that's not quoting solar plus storage these days. And if you ask the same constituents, you know, five years ago, how much storage are you thinking about doing? There was a lot of quotes going out RFPs where they weren't even asking for the storage component to be built into the quote. They weren't even considering it. Uh, now it's become a bit of a de facto standard. And we, you know, we, we expect over the next five, 10 years, it'll continue to become more of the de facto standard. So from a technical perspective, we've seen research that suggests when you get to 20% of energy mix being driven by intermittent resources, the grid needs to um, get additional sort of reliability, reliability built in. Part of that will be just more baseload resources. Part of that will be storage. And I think that you know, solar plus storage becoming a de facto resource standard kind of becomes uh, the offset to 20% maybe being the upper limit because um, you don't really have that being as intermittent as um, just building solar alone. So a lot of TAM potential still left. I think we're at 100 gigawatts of utility scale solar cumulatively installed in the US. Um, 20% of the grid on a generation basis would put you into the multiple hundreds of gigawatts of potential capacity given the capacity factor for solar is only about 25%. So still a long ways to go. Um, and storage kind of uh, raises that upper bar, if you will, as well. Brian, that's a great answer. And one very quick follow-up is, you know, one of the things we struggle with in traditional energy, which has been, of course, certainly my focus, Maynard and Mike as well, is sort of the degree of policy support that's needed or not needed for new energies. I think the solar example is a great one where over the years, the costs have come down, as you mentioned, there's lots of good reasons for consumers, especially in resi solar, to want to do this stuff. You mentioned the, the rate hikes and so forth. For specifically resi solar, how do you think about policy? I get net metering is a big bucket that you addressed. Um, it's often kind of the knock-on, do I want to do this stuff that's going to require some subsidy or so forth? I actually don't think that applies to resi solar anymore, but for that specific space, how how important is sort of the policy initiative, if you will? I mean, the biggest policy initiative in the U.S. since 2006 has been the uh, federal 30% investment tax credit. So whether you're building rooftop solar or you're building utility scale, um, as an owner uh, or builder or investor of solar in the country, you're getting a 30% tax credit from the government. Um, and that got extended by the Inflation Reduction Act for another 10 years here recently. So uh, that's been a staple of US you know, clean energy policy for quite a while here. We expect it to continue to, to be going forward. It's had bipartisan support under various different congressional regimes. Um, and so uh, that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. If you break down the math of you know that 30% tax credit and how far it goes in each end market it actually goes a lot further in utility scale than it does in residential the reason being you know god bless the residential consumer but they pay the highest price for electricity of all the buyers in the market you've got residential you got cni and you've got utility scale and so the threshold to meet or undercut the existing incumbent price is a lot easier. Um, I'm not saying that if you don't have a 30% ITC, you could do it everywhere in the country, but to give you some context, the first residential solar company that went public um, in the US and, and we we banked them was 2013 Solar City. And Solar City came out to the market operating in eight states. Those presumably were the eight states where they could go in and say, hey, I can save you money as a consumer on your electricity bill versus whatever you're paying uh, to your local utility. And as you could imagine, that was the coast, that was Hawaii, et cetera. If you look at the Sunruns and Sonovas of today, the leaders in residential solar, they're operating in about 30 states. So as costs have deflated 
And as utility prices have gone up over the past decade, these companies have gone from operating in, you know, eight states to, you know, triple, quadruple that number because now their product offering, their service is in the money across much more of the market. Over the course of that 10 years, the ITC hasn't changed. It continued to be the 30%. And so it's not as if policy has gotten better or more lucrative to allow these companies to target a bigger growth opportunity. It's been what they've been doing on the operational front cost-wise. And then obviously they're benefiting from their counterparts. Their real competition is the utilities and the utilities have made their uh, their lives easier, their economics you know, more underwritable, if you will. So I know policy gets a lot of headlines. It's always going to get a lot of headlines, but you can see over the past decade how policy hasn't shifted a bit and you've seen other elements of you know the cost stack move in directions where these companies have been able to drive their growth and TAMs higher. Um, you know, no policy discussion would be complete without kind of touching upon the Inflation Reduction Act. This just puts everything on steroids even further. Um, and so the ITC itself gets a little bit of a bonus. I think what um, is clearly most incremental about the policy tailwinds that are now playing out and, you know, seem positioned to play out in the U.S. over the next decade are what we are doing to incentivize actual production and industrial policy, you know, in the country. And so rather than, you know, building our clean energy economy and, you know, that mix shift on the backs of imported goods, we're trying to do that now on the backs of uh, a domestic supply chain that we're building. And so that's sort of the new, new portion of the um, policy framework, if you will. And so uh, we'll, we'll see, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate, obviously, as to how long the IRA will last and if things could change. But our view, you know, sitting here today is the ITC has been around and had bipartisan support for a while. If there are parts of the IRA that get under, um, you know, put under the microscope and, and scrutinize a bit further in terms of their budget impact, it'd be the new things like the manufacturing credits. That's perfect place to... Um for my next question, which is you, you put out a piece, uh, Brian, and talked about those credits because we, we seem to be now in the phase where the IRA, a lot, of the, uh, a lot of it's getting defined and we're starting to say, okay, now this is what we really meant and the Treasury is coming out with guidelines. Um, maybe talk to us about what people are focused on uh, as the IRA gets more specific. Are there particular issues that people are keying in on or that they're watching for? Or what, what are some of the catalysts yeah, in that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 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 biggest um, uncertainties around the IRA language um, up until recently were around two elements. One was the um, the domestic content credit for buyers. So you get the base thirty percent ITC, but if you buy American, effectively, you can get an additional ten percent on top of the thirty, making your tax credit a forty percent credit. It's a big deal if you think about it in terms of you know dollars. Uh, a developer spending a hundred million dollars to build a hundred megawatt facility in you know Central Valley, California, would get an additional ten million dollars back to them if they're buying U.S.-made panels, inverters, trackers, etc., and qualify for the credit. As you mentioned, Maynard, the the high level premise of you need to buy American to get the credit was clearly um, understood, but how you actually qualify for buying American was undefined. And so, I think what um, what we saw this last Friday um, uh, was around the second part of it, which is the forty five X manufacturing credits and the credits themselves. Uh, give you as a panel producer, as a tracker manufacturer, as an inverter maker in the country, certain amount of credits from the U.S. government for building those components in the country. So one of those two pieces has been more clearly defined. We got that last Friday with the 45X. I think what we haven't seen get defined is the actual um, domestic content credit. Timeline for that is still unspecified. I think there's expectations it could be early in the year, you know, call it in the next, you know, couple months to, to quarters, um, definitely before mid-year. And the implication of it is that some of these buyers who are waiting to get the clarity haven't put in their POs for some of the equipment, whether it's a tracker or a panel or a combination of different things. And so there's some pent-up demand 
pending that clarity, which is creating a little bit of a, a logjam, if you will, for the backlogs and potential bookings pipelines of the equipment names uh, themselves. And so that's probably what the industry itself is looking for clarity um, most significantly here over the next you know, couple months to quarters. I think for investors, it's similar, but there's also an additional um, wrinkle when we talk to investors there seems to be um, a bit of focus, increasing focus as we get into 24, the realization, the acknowledgement that it's an election year. Mm. What can we glean from the tea leaves around different comments being made by different politicians, different sides of the house, et cetera. And so I think that is something on top of what the industry is looking for that the buy side is, is um, intimately sort of focused on at the moment. So our, uh, our timing is fantastic here, Brian, because just like in the last 24 hours, you updated your your coverage universe and your your ratings, and and you made some some new calls for the year. Do you want to uh, tell our audience uh, some of those calls you're making and some of the changes you've made? Uh, I think they're fascinating. Sure, of course. Um, so we uh, are. Um, Sticking with the call from last year that um, the best end market to own uh, across U.S. solar is still utility scale. And so in that vein, some of our top ideas for solar, you know, uh, solar panel maker, which is in our, which is on our conviction list uh, in the SMID cap space. We've got, um, you know, peripheral component makers like Shoals and Array Technologies that we have uh, rated as, as buy rated names. Having said that, I think the um, incremental call we're making into the new year is that this is a year where we would want to have long exposure on the Resi and market. And I would say we got negative on Resi Solar in the summer of 2022. We were a bit early. Um, and we basically have avoided that end market for the better part of the past year and a half. So this is the first time in quite a while we've become a bit more constructive not all in, you know, we're not saying that, you know, this is a V-shaped inflection in Resi Solar and you need to own all the names, uh, but we did uh, upgrade Sonova, one of the residential installers uh, from neutral to buy. We have Sunrun, a peer of theirs in the installer space, also rated to buy. And then in the equipment slash large cap space, our preferred way to um, prosecute the theme in Resi Solar would be Enphase. Uh, and they're, you know, the market share leader in inverters. So that would be our preference across the different end markets. Still utility scale over Resi, but if you're looking to play a bit more offense into 24, we would say you definitely want to have some Resi exposure, uh, that kind of core holding um, uh, framework, as I alluded to earlier in this uh, in this conversation, would apply probably more to utility scale, where we think those names are a bit more defensive. Um, and then when we look at geo mix, we do think that there's also uh, a decent overlay you need to keep in mind as you think about 24 stock picking frameworks. The U.S. is in a sort of advanced stage of the downturn, which means the recovery, in our view, is going to happen faster than other regions of the world, namely Europe, where we think Europe is still early on in the stages of their downturn, inventories having to be rebalanced, pricing still having some downside risk. And so we are generally uh, more positive on names that have U.S. domestic exposure sales-wise than those that have Europe. And so one of the incremental calls we're making on that basis is we downgraded Inverter Maker uh, Solar Edge to sell. Uh, they're a peer of Enphase. And so, you know, one of the pushbacks we've already gotten right out of the gate is, you know, how can you have a buy on one and a sell on another when they're all kind of tied to Resi recovery? Solar Edge has 70% mixed to Europe and and Enphase doesn't. Uh, they have 70% mixed to the U.S. So we do think the um, the rate of recovery across those two geos will look quite different, U.S. being better than Europe. So, Brent, we're, uh, <clears throat> we're almost at the hour mark, and I, I can think of three whoppers we didn't talk about with you. We didn't talk about China. We didn't talk about water. And we didn't talk about just power in general, this sense of, like, power is getting more expensive, it's a problem, all these issues, the grid, all these kinds of things. Um, do you mind giving us, this is impossible. You would only do this to a friend. Give us one minute on each one of those topics because they're just so fascinating. Absolutely. So let, let's start with, um, China. Um, we 
believe that China will continue to um, be a tough place when it comes to the whole U.S.-China renewables trade policy. And so, you know, we have a cell rating on Jinko Solar. We did recently upgrade Canadian Solar and other Chinese solar name to neutral from cell. Um, but that was more on the basis of the stock having pulled back quite a bit and, and kind of reaching our price target. And so um, we, we think it's still going to be a pretty tough slog um, when it comes to the, the trade policy when, you know, around solar in, in particular. And right in the midst of all of you know, the debates around IRA and who's going to benefit, we think that you know, it's going to be tough for the Chinese uh, solar names to really get much of a benefit. And hence, you know, one of the reasons we would continue to favor you know, domestic manufacturing presence as well as U.S. sales mix. And you know, China is a little bit on, you know, outside looking in when it comes to that dynamic. I mean, China as a market is going to be huge and we continue to see um, double-digit growth even off of a, a massive year that they had this year. Uh, but really, it's it's an insular market. You know, none of the names under our coverage outside of the ADRs that I mentioned, CSIQ and JKS, participate in that market. And so um, really, from our vantage point, it's a question of whether these Chinese solar names can participate in some of the, the nice fundamental recovery we're expecting in the U.S. And, and we generally don't see that happening. And so it's a little bit of a continuation of what we've seen over the past cycle, which is decarbonization happening at the same pace of deglobalization, right? The U.S. market is its own separate supply demand pricing paradigm, just like China is its own separate supply demand pricing paradigm. And so um, we're generally a bit more cautious on China's leverage to the U.S. Um, and uh, a lot of those companies are you know, more levered to um, the supply demand dynamics, which outside of the U.S. just continue to, to, um, to track a little bit unfavorably. Uh, touching on water, I mean, one of the trends uh, we're really um, excited about when it comes to the water space is outside of the cycle, because the cycle is what it is, and water is always going to have a bit of a cycle where it grows at GDP plus, it's repair, replace, it's muni spending when their budgets are flush, and you know you're never going to get out of that cyclical um, ebb and flow. But uh, the water quality, the build out of water infrastructure globally. Um, we're seeing, you know, legislation just like for renewables. The first time uh, we've seen any meaningful amount of water uh, legislation, ten billion dollars um, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, being um, built into treating chemicals in the drinking water across the U.S. Um, system. And so, uh, this definitely has sort of a um, I think what we would consider a leading indicator uh, trend for what um, type of water spending we're going to see going forward and where we're going to see these areas of water spend kind of pick up in terms of emphasis. And so, you know, one of the names in our group where uh, we see a lot of um, potential upside is Xylem, uh, you know, global water infrastructure equipment supplier, which does the water treatment, the filtration, the purity, but also some of the, you know, more smart water diagnostics of, you know, is there a leak in the pipe? Is there uh, any chemicals in the pipe that shouldn't be there? And just having more of a smarter water system uh, to kind of upgrade the antiquated systems that a lot of um, uh, a lot of our pipes are built around. So that would be a theme I think we expect to continue to play out in, in water as an industry, but also even in the equity markets going forward. Uh, and then last topic, I lost. I said, oh, oh yeah, the power system. The power you know, system, like, the easiest th one. This is a um, whole show, Brian. This is a whole <laughs> show. I should not do this to you. You know, we, we, I mentioned earlier in the call, um, we're seeing utility capex grow. Uh, we're seeing low growth for the first time, you know, for the longest time, you know, our utilities analysts would just put 0.5% low growth into the model for the next 20 years, and it never changed. And now we're actually seeing that number become a real number, and it's at the bottom up level, you're seeing low growth forecasts from some of these actual utilities and their territories perk up for the first time in, in multiple, multiple cycles. And so that's electrification, that's EVs, that's charging stations, that's just a lot of different things happening. Um, and so, you know, load growth obviously is going to tie into more needs for generation, which ties into more needs for CapEx. And 
where that capex gets allocated, I think renewables is going to continue to be, you know, far up in that list in terms of the priority. Maybe not always, you know, uh, one or two, but I think um, again, based on some of the data we've seen from the EIA over the past several years, like renewables will continue to have a, a pretty high up place in that uh, hierarchy, and so all of this would suggest that. Um, the growth uh, for the equipment names in the supply chain, the growth for the developers and how much money they're going to have to invest in the field, developing all these larger scale assets and, and power assets, uh, including, you know, a lot of them being renewables is only going to continue to grow in emphasis and, and grow in volume. So all seemingly, you know, positive in terms of direction, if you have more than, you know, a six or 12 month view, which I know for our investors sometimes is difficult because these stocks are momentum and, and kind of trading driven from time to time. But if you look at the sort of bigger picture secular backdrop, definitely the power sector seems to be moving in a very positive up into the right direction for what it means um, uh, for the renewable sector as well. Well, Brian, you can tell we were delighted to visit with you. We, we probably only have 25 more questions. We need like Brian Lee part two. <laughs> But one uh, between now and Miami, when Arjun and I are excited to come over and uh, and see the conference and hang out with you guys, between now and then, what are you going to do? Any plans for the holiday? Hopefully, you got some fun coming your way. It's going to be uh, a, a lot of R and R and staycation, and 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 my um, my my son is actually a fairly competitive basketball player, and I don't know why these oh, basketball tournaments like to put all these Christmas uh, events on the calendar, but I guess that's when everyone uh, has nothing to do and is out of school, so you go play ball. But uh, I, I will be in some musky, sweaty gyms for the next couple of weeks, actually, before I get down to sunny Miami. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you joining us and your friendship. This was fascinating and we wish you a, a happy holiday season and just thank you for your friendship. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was uh, a, a, a fun conversation. Uh, definitely uh, hit, 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 uh, hit all the bases, it seems like. Well, well I'm sorry we, 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 we were squeezing China water and power into four minutes, but we knew you could do it. The speed round was the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, take care. Thanks, everybody, and happy holidays.